You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Journalist Jane Mayer has been a thorn in the side of three presidents, two Supreme Court justices, and one dubious news network. The pieces she writes for The New Yorker and the books that dive even deeper are complete and definitive. Her work on torture tarnished the presidency of George W. Bush, but she was no gentler while reporting on Obama's whistleblower prosecutions or his expanded use of predator drones. The corruption in the Trump administration, of course, is proving rich fodder as well. Mayer rose to national prominence, digging into the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas story, a story she entered without prejudice and reported straight down the middle. She emerged a polarizing national figure, bloodied by the right-wing political attack machine, Yet she has avoided becoming polarized herself. She still digs in whenever she smells something hidden. There is that famous line from All the King's Men, that wonderful, wonderful book about politics, which says there's something on everybody. (laughs) (laughs) For the record, as they used to say. For the record. We're all human. And, of course, people do things they're embarrassed about. I think a lot of what interests me is how people deal with that. For instance, when I was just covering Kavanaugh recently in his confirmation hearings, he was being accused of behaving horribly in high school um, towards women. And I thought it was possible that... If he had said, yes, I did, and I've outgrown it, you know, I now respect women, and I'm so sorry. I was immature. I was immature, that the public might have cut him the slack. But to me, what was worse almost than what he'd done in the first place was my conviction by the end of doing all this reporting on him that he was lying under oath to get confirmed. Because what kind of adult this many years later lies under oath to get confirmed? Someone who you don't want on the Supreme Court. Mm. There is something on almost everyone, but the 
the question is, how do we deal with our mistakes? Have we learned from them? I think you can convince the public. You can get support if you if you're sympathetic, empathetic, and 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 contrite, s- contrite, and and self-critical to some extent. You're still writing about Kavanaugh, doing some work involved with Kavanaugh, correct? Well, there was someone who um, there was an a, another witness and another episode involving him and and his treatment towards women that was really alarming. And uh, Ronan Farrow and I were working on stories on this, and we were unable to get somebody on the record to talk about it. But he was a very good witness. And um, I think actually there are going to be a several... A he. It's a, it's a he. Right. Uh, there are several books coming out, and I think some of the books are going to out this subject. Um, I may do some more work on it myself, but the, I think the public will eventually get more of a story here. I mean... In one sense, I guess, in terms of the work you do, I'm guessing this doesn't really matter ultimately. But, you know, he's in. He's confirmed. He's got that job. So further examinations of what he in particular has done would result in what? I'm glad you asked this question because this gets to the mindset of reporters like myself, which is we're not driving an agenda to try to get Kavanaugh off the court. The whole point of what people like me do is get the facts and get the truth and get it out in front of the public. And then we're in a democracy, and I really believe if people have good information, they'll make good choices. I don't know what will come of it, but in its own right, it's just worth knowing what was true and getting the history down. Now, we were doing the research, and uh, we were talking about how during the period with the Kavanaugh book, there was kind of an implication in some of what we read that you do this with Ronan, and it was kind of an arranged marriage. You weren't really, <laughs> you hadn't really collaborated with him before. Right. And that when the time came for you to draw out the women, you kind of stepped back and let him do that, which is so unusual because you're the woman, I would just want to we, say. It's true. And, and we had done one story before that was also a, a, a Me Too type story, which was the Eric Schneiderman story. I kind of called him in for extra help on dealing with the women. And and the truth is that Ronan is like the Me Too whisperer. I mean, women love to talk to him about this subject, and he's endlessly good at drawing people out empathetic. on Empathetic. He is very empathetic. Do you think it's the result of this other situation with his family? I have to guess it right. probably is. I mean, he's also just a handsome person. Um, I'll so, let you say that. Well, he is. Yeah. You know, he walks into a room and... He's halfway and, there. And so... And I was less good at it. I mean, I'm a kind of a, like an investigative type who's not afraid of anybody, but I'm not the best handholder. That bedside manner. Put it this way. In my family, my husband was the one that helped the kid with the homework because I was too tough. I would just say... I'd be too critical and say, you know, you want it to be good, or yeah. do you want me to just tell Frederick you? Frederick Douglass already? wouldn't have said that. <laughs> exactly. Ronan is better at dealing with the personal crises that these women were going through, and I was better at sort of seeing the holes in the stories of the liars. Yeah, Kavanaugh. Was there a point you knew? You said he's in, or did you not know? I did not know. I'm, you know, someone said to me that reporters are the last naives. I always think that if people get the information, it will matter, mm-hmm. that the truth really matters. I think maybe in this case, people might have, a lot of people may have even known the truth here. They may have suspected or even thought that Kavanaugh wasn't telling the truth, and they wanted to confirm him anyway. Why? It, he stood for positions that they had. I think it was the, as much as anything, it was the anti-abortion movement that 
mm. was behind They're going to kill Roe v. Wade. You could just feel it. It was like a, like a political freight train coming at you. Mm. And, even, and, and the process, it wasn't a serious process. It was a mock trial with a fake FBI <laughs> investigation where the FBI literally did not call people. I was talking to people who were calling the FBI, trying to get their information to the FBI, and the FBI would not call them back. But even though I'm uncertain about how to characterize Comey historically, is there any institution in this country that's more tattered its reputation than the FBI right now? It's almost unbelievable, don't well, you? Well, it is partly, though, also because, you know, the president ha- keeps whacking at it because it's been investigating him. So it's gotten it from all sides. Um, I, you know, I'm with you on the subject of Comey. He's a very confusing character. The FBI had improved itself a lot since the days of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, when it really was practically a criminal organization in its own right. So, um, I mean, what I worry about as much as anything about this is just that President Trump is busy delegitimizing every single <laughs> kind of organization that could put a check on his power. And part of that is the FBI, and of course part of that is we, the enemies of the American people in the press. Um, Where were you working and who pulled you into the Anita Hill event? So I was at the Wall Street Journal. I was a staff writer for the Wall Street Journal for 12 years. And um, And I want to pause there and say before you go further, what was the journal like back then in 1982? Different than it is now? It was different. It wasn't owned by Rupert Murdoch. It was actually kind of a funky, cool place in its way. There was, I mean, there was the whole business part of it that covered the business world in a big way, and that was the main sort of bread and butter of it. But there were also these wonderful, quirky feature writers there and a few really great editors. And I I was assigned to the front page at some point where we just wrote these wonderful front page stories, some of which were very funny. And, and we had a pretty good time. We also had an endless budget. We wasted so much money uh, traveling around the world. You miss those days, don't you? I do. Oh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, so, um, you know, it had a very conservative editorial page, but it had top-level um, talent, the editing staff, and, and, and some of the writers. So, so anyway, I was, I was posted in Washington for them. I'd been covering the Reagan White House, and... I um, was watching the the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings, and Jill Abramson and I had been friends since middle school. In we went to the Fieldston School in New York, and we'd been wanting to do a book together just for fun. So I was sort of glued to these hearings. They were just mind blowing. And I called up Jill and I said, "Come on, this is it. This is our subject." And so we just kind of jumped for it. Um, and then we didn't realize it took us three years, the mm-hmm. two of us, to get to the bottom of that. Um, very confusing sort of mystery of who did what to whom and what's true. And did some of that approach that you developed then, was your first book in that area, did it carry over on into Kavanaugh? Well, I learned some things from it because what we found out, I think the the, the most surprising thing we found out was that Clarence Thomas had a, a long pattern of behavior. So on, on issues having to do with sex, people usually have patterns of behavior. And the other thing was that because of that, there were other women. And if the other women had stepped forward, I think people would have believed Anita Hill more. And there were other women who wanted to testify, and they didn't get a chance. Well, Joe Biden was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he was quite 
outmaneuvered by the Republicans, even though he was the Democrats in were in the majority and yeah. he was in charge. Um, but they scared him. Do you think him. that Biden just wanted that all to go away? He kind of did want it to all go away. He yeah. was uncomfortable with the subject. This was a long time ago. Yeah. And people didn't really even have that much of a grasp of what sexual harassment was. And some of the jargon, obviously, you know, I mean, we don't need to go into it now, but the, the, the titles of the films he watched and all that kind of uh, vulgarity it was really put people off when it was on TV back then, I'll never forget. It, was, I mean, it seemed like something the whole country wanted it to go away. They kind of did. It was it was embarrassing it was. all around. And um, <laughs> I have to say, it meant that, that Jill and I had to become quite expert on the subject of Clarence Thomas's pornography graphic interests. And we even rented one of his favorite movies. Long Dong Silver? Uh, No, it was Bad Mama (laughs) Jama. (laughs) And and we sort of, you know, shooed the kids out of the room. Hours later, whenever it ended, the, the, you know, the credits were running and both Jill and I were sound asleep. It was the most boring porn movie ever. So, but any, anyway, um, it, it, it was unusual research and it was a subject that made people uncomfortable. And, and I think, um, it, it specifically made, Biden uncomfortable, and it's something that's going to haunt him because people's views on all these things have really um, become much more critical, mm. and and of of and and much less tolerant of that kind of behavior in the office place. And also, when you're not answering that question, people are assuming that you are covering something up. For Biden, that's an example of something people want an answer from him. What responsibility do you bear? You were the chairman of the Judiciary Committee during the Clarence Thomas hearings. Do you think the truth was unearthed? Was the truth made bare on that committee? And and if not, why? What responsibility do you bear? Everybody feels like, especially if there's like sedimentary layers in the media that's gone by, oh, that was so long ago, we don't need to answer to that now. We asked and answered. And I want to go with Biden. I want to go, not really. Not really. No. And, And his statement on it where he said, I wished I could have done more. Well, I have to say as someone who really looked closely at the record then, he absolutely could have done more. No one stopped him but himself. Do you think that uh, what happened with Thomas is responsible for his kind of uh, seething with bitterness, even now? I think he's very bitter. Yeah, Yeah, I do. And I think that that he's filled with resentment towards the people who questioned him. And, uh, you know, so yes, I do. He has an asterisk and and he's bitter about it. And I think that, and and he doesn't speak about it, but sometimes his wife does. You know, she becomes the voice of it. She keeps a list. Well, and and she literally called Anita Hill at some point and said, you know, isn't it time for you to come forward and confess? It's ever-present in his mind, it seems like. Um, you did that during the time you were at the journal? I took a leave. I think Jill somehow managed to keep doing her job while she, right. well, collecting a paycheck. I was sort of, meanwhile... Uh, I she was a, at the Times then? No, she was at the journal, too, at oh, that was. point. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. And um, so it took us, as I said, three years. And I almost went back to the journal. I had a baby during that period, so there were a few distractions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wound up going to the New Yorker instead. Never went back to the journal. How did your work as a journalist change during that period? Did you change during the Anita Hill experience? I think I became more and more committed to this idea of of total rigor, just talking to everybody you possibly can, chasing like every little scrap. I became like Bob Caro. It was yeah, it was and I love I love Carol. Someone asked him, he was speaking up at Harvard at some function about how do you get the stories you get? I mean, and he said there's only one ingredient really. 
and it's time. It takes time to get people to talk to you. They often don't tell you everything the first time you meet them, and you have to go back and back and back. And eventually, most people really do want to tell you what's what they really know, but they're not going to tell it to That's you the first time That's why we do the show for an hour. <laughs> we figure the final and then you waterboard them. You're going to tell them. Well, <laughs> they waterboard themselves, maybe, but... But we're not getting that kind of reporting a lot of the time because we're getting tweets that take less than a second, practically. And that's you responsible, know, largely? I, I mean, I think, you know, what the big change in journalism is it's moving faster and faster. From the time when I started, when you would write long stories for the front page of the Wall Street Journal and take weeks on them, and then long books, you know, the, the, the pressure is to file many, many times a day. And, and, and you can't possibly talk to all the people or even get to the bottom of anything. You just sort of throw it up against the wall and see what sticks. And, and magazines, it's like my friends of mine who are like, well, how do you find time to read The New Yorker? You know, I mean, I say, well, I have a stack of them and I read them on a plane for like four hours when I fly to L.A. It's good you fly because I hear the, the, the main reason people um, kill their subscriptions to The New Yorker is guilt. The, the old issues are piling up and they, yeah. they feel so guilty. Yeah. So you need those long transcontinental things. i right now. You know, but no, but no, so with Hill, it made you more. Um, the book came out when? Uh, 1994. How soon after that did Tina Brown contact you? Uh, she, I'm trying to think. She actually talked to me a little before it came out. I because I wound up doing a review of another book about the Clarence Thomas story. Brock. David Brock's book. Yeah, and that's that caught her attention. And describe what happened with Brock's book in your own words. Well, Brock came out, this is David Brock, who used to be a right-wing um, journalist and kind of a hitman in his own words. And he came out with a book claiming that Anita Hill was, as he put it, a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. Mm-hmm. And that she was an erotomaniac who had made up these things. And it was defending Clarence Thomas. What proof did he offer? Well, um, he twisted a bunch of things and... Um, the reason I wound up reviewing his book, I didn't want to originally because it's kind of unethical feeling in some ways to review a competitor's book. So I first said no, but then I realized that people were beginning to believe him and that I was one of the only people who knew that what he was saying was a lie um, because I'd done the same reporting. And so I felt some sort of responsibility to say, Whoa! Watch out! This is not true. And so we, so Jill and I did this review together for the New Yorker, and we we basically busted David Brock, and it was my first encounter with the right wing. Really, they did a the David Brock wrote a cover story on Jill and myself, and it was an eight thousand word story in the American Spectator that described us as complete frauds and liars. Who and funds them? Uh, well, like Richard, Richard Mellon Scaife. Scaife. <laughs> yes. So what do you know? it gets you back in the end of the day to the, uh, the a handful of huge funders of right wing politics, right. and he was kind of their handmaiden. It was very. It's become an incredibly weird story because he changed his whole politics. That is, David Brock did, and turned around and admitted years later that he was wrong, that he had lied, that Anita Hill did tell the truth, that Clarence Thomas he believed did not. And he actually came out and apologized to both um, Jill Abramson and myself and to Anita Hill. So it was really an unusual situation. You, don't see that that often. you never get an apology in life. It was really crazy. Did you run into him since his uh, reformation? I have seen him. I 
Yes, you see them in Washington all the time. It's a little town. Are you pals? I wouldn't say we're pals. Do you play Scrabble together? But, no? <laughs> but his former boyfriend always comps me at his restaurant. I think they still feel a little guilty. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a weird story. Part of getting older, one of the great things is you live to see these plot twists you couldn't believe. Yeah, that, that is was amazing. One of them. So, so, so uh, Tina comes ringing Tina while rings. you're do- doing the Brock review. Which is a feather in your cap, obviously. People were very, very taken that you did that. She was very excited about it. And um, and, and the Hill book had yet to come out. My book hadn't yet come out, right. but I immediately, um, I, I mean, the minute she showed any interest, I was out living in Santa Monica at that point. Oh, well, no, and why I got there? on a plane and um, zoomed into New York to have an interview with her and try to get why a job. Why were you out there? My husband was the West Coast bureau chief for the Washington Post, and oh, we was he were, covering out there? Oh, you Please know, don't say Hollywood. I'm going to throw up if you OJ, say Hollywood. OJ. Oh, all that yeah, earthquakes, OJ. all of that yeah, kind of stuff. I was there for you North there? Ridge, 94. I'm standing there in my driveway in my underwear. <laughs> really? And I'm in my driveway, and as I look out in the hills, I live in the valley with my ex-wife, and we look out over the valley, and you see the flames, like gas pipes had erupted, and flames are shooting up almost volcanically into the air. It's dawn. It's still dark. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice behind me go, go, hey, and I turn around, and there's a man with an enormous wrench in his hand and a bathrobe. And I just the just the image was like out of a like a like a, a apocalypse, yeah, like a, like a Freddy Krueger movie. <laughs> yeah. And I turned and I went ah, and and he said, "You want me to turn off your gas?" And he was going down the oh block and turning off the gas of everybody's houses before their houses blew up. It was, was really there. scary for East. And you're an East Coast person originally yeah. too. I, I, a I, horror I, movie. To have it's a horror movie to have the earth suddenly splitting yeah. open beneath your feet. Yeah. New Yorker writer Jane Mayer has seen her share of horror. Early in her career, she was reporting in Beirut for the Wall Street Journal when Hezbollah killed 300 people near where she was staying. She says that witnessing the aftermath of that attack will haunt her for the rest of her life. Talking with great journalists about their early careers is one of my favorite pastimes. My friend on the media host Bob Garfield has an unfailing moral compass, but he wasn't born with it. I didn't go to J school. I was an English major. Right. Um, but uh, I happily blundered into journalism, knew literally from the first morning that that's what I wanted to do. But I wasn't even trained in basic journalism ethics. So on the one hand... Did that hurt you? I, I did some things as a young journalist that were firing offenses encouraged by my own newspaper. Can you was, give me an example? I, you know, I would need a tires for my car, and my city editor, who was corrupt, sent me to... The rest of that conversation can be found in our archives at heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today, Jane Mayer's name is synonymous with the deep investigative journalism of The New Yorker. But in 1994, when the new editor-in-chief, Tina Brown, called her, Mayer couldn't believe her luck. I got my resume together like in 10 seconds, and um, when she offered me a job, it was, it was sort of kind of dream come true to go to The New Yorker. She came what year? She was just putting her team together. Well, she so just it was arrived. just It was relatively new. And, um, and there was some controversy seemed, when she took over. Yeah, it's very you? exciting, though. No, I thought it was going to be fantastic. I'd never, I don't think I'd had a female boss before. Um, she was very, very, very cool, brought, bringing in all kinds of interesting Super bright people. Woman. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed working for Tina Brown. She was, she was kind of like... Um, a producer as much as anything. She would sort of say, think of a subject and then decide which talent she wanted to get on that particular story. I mean, there were, you know, she also would fax you at three in the morning. So she was up at three in the morning and expected and you might be too. Yeah. They're both up reading at three in the morning. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. How has it changed over the years? And now you're in the remnant period, obviously. How did it change? Oh, God. Did you know, it, it seems like it's gone so fast. Right. Um, th- the place is, you know, Remnick is also, I got to say, I mean, I've had a lot of different bosses in my life before this. I've landed in a good spot with Remnick is also a great boss. The thing about The New Yorker is they, these are very, very smart people. And we it's had like, him on the show, too. And it's, well, so it's <laughs> like playing tennis with somebody who's better than you. Yeah. You wind up looking really good. Yeah, yeah. And so it's you good that you get better. They make you look better, yeah. right? I'm convinced even the typeface at the place, it looks elegant. 
so you can write something that's really not so special, but it looks really good when but, it's in the New Yorker. But also what I love about Remnick is you can tell he deeply cares. You know, I mean, he, he takes Very the job. Much. And, and, and that caring and that commitment to that, to, to keeping that place at that level is something that never ebbs. I will read pieces. My God, what did it take, like 18 months to write this thing? They I mean, do a, sometimes. Like, I mean, they go through hundreds of drafts, literally hundreds of them. And I think... I mean, I suppose the reason that we take umbrage at being called fake news is just if anybody had any idea how much effort goes into trying to get everything right, you know, I'm not claiming that we always do, but I don't think you could try any harder. These, I mean, we have fact checkers who speak multiple languages, who call up every source that we've interviewed and go over everything with them yet again. Um, there are, you know, there are anonymous sources they're not made up sources because they're sources who the fact checkers have spoken with the editors know who they are it's all so careful it's we have fantastic have a lot lawyers of we yeah. have we have an in-house grammarian who goes through the grammar of every sentence uh, and so I mean, it, it's it's excruciating to close these pieces. You, I, I often get sick right afterwards, and I'm not the only one. A lot of the writers do. It's a really high you pass stress out of the thing. Finish line. You do kind of because it's so exhausting. Um, and then, and then, so so this idea that um, we've got a president who's who's claiming it's all made up and it's full of lies. I hope that the truth speaks for itself, the only way. Well, I feel way. like the modern GOP, I mean, uh, back during the Nixon scandals, Republicans were required to vote for impeachment and did. You know, what happens now is Republicans are now renouncing that and saying, we're going to tell the truth if it's going to get us where we want to go. Telling the truth, they're not going to get uh, Thomas on the court. They're not going to get Kavanaugh on the court. They're not going to they're not gonna get Trump elected president. Trump is there and he's going to run. And people actually believe he's this crack business executive and has all this acumen about business, thanks to Mark Burnett and the TV show. And see, when, the, when The Apprentice was on, and, and my brother was on The Apprentice and he Celebrity was. Apprentice, I never once watched The Apprentice. Never once. I never watched that TV show. I mean, who the, who the hell would watch that? And yet in America, they think you know that's who he is. Smart, decisive, commanding, all these things, which everybody who knows him knows he's the opposite of that. But, it's uh, what we missed, though, The Apprentice part, because just like you didn't watch it, most of the political press corps didn't watch it no. either. We just, you know, that that was just a gigantic failing on yeah. our part. How could we know? Though? How could we know? Yeah. Well, we should have. We should have watched it, and I did finally watch it. And just even the opening of it, where it's got the money, money, you know, song, mm -hmm. and you've got um, him coming in on a helicopter, and a limousine is meeting him, and some beautiful girl gets out of it mm -hmm. with a clipboard for him. It's like money well, pornography. It's right. like a fantasy right. of what being exactly. rich is. So I didn't see. I did not see it coming. I mean, the closest oh, I got was I interviewed um, the one of the stories I loved the most was interviewing Tony Schwartz, who wrote The Art of the Deal. Mm -hmm. And he said, people think there's more to Trump and that there's another Trump. And when he gets elected, he's going to be different. He said, there is no other Trump. No Trump. It's all like, a, you know, a centimeter deep. This is a very sophomoric question, but you're, all these insights of yours into uh, Hill and Kavanaugh, and, and you've made a lot of your career, not all of it, about these kinds of things. Why, why does Spitzer go down and Schneiderman goes down and, and, uh, and Franken goes down? And, and to this day, to this day, Trump evades justice on the subject of sexual assault. What's your opinion about that? 
I think you've just got a completely different standard in the two parties. I mean, and that the problem is that the Democrats, they take, take these issues seriously, right. which means that the males in the party are very vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. And um, and and that on the Republican side, they just plain, you know, stonewall right through it. I mean, Trump has said, you know, that he could be, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. He, he's, he's so solidified his base behind him on all sorts of things. Eric Schneiderman resigned under three hours after the story in The New Yorker came out. That's how seriously the Democrats take it. And I think you have to be proud that the Democratic Party does care about it. It does matter. And it's trying to send a message to women that, you know, we respect you and um, we're not going to tolerate abuses, sexual abuse from powerful men. I And so I, I Do you mean, think I, that Schneiderman's case, like Franken's or like Kavanaugh's, I should say, rather, is worth exploring further? Meaning Schneiderman still contends that one of those women is lying. You know, having done the reporting, I don't think so. I, there There's no wiggle room I, there. I, I don't think he's got um, a chance got of it. trying to convince people otherwise. Right. There are too many, too many women who had similar it's kind of uncanny how close their experiences were. The phrases are the same. These women have not spoken to each other, and they're describing almost exactly the <clears> same <throat> thing. It's it's kind of creepy, almost. Now, you wrote recently uh, your article about Fox News and. I have some friends of mine in New York, and some of them have unswervingly liberal credentials and Democratic credentials, or they're certainly not Republicans, they're certainly not Fox News people, who defend Murdoch and admire Murdoch. Do you think that Rupert Murdoch really is, in his DNA, a political conservative to the degree, to the degree that's reflected by his on-air talent at Fox? No. I don't. In fact, one of the questions I had about him was, how does he manage to live with himself <laughs> knowing better than a lot of the stuff that Fox puts up on the air? And I knew, because I'd been doing the reading and, and talking to people and interviewing people and seen even his own tweets, that, for instance, he has a completely different position on immigration than Trump. Um, he he c considers Trump an effing idiot, as he said to many people on the subject of immigration. Yet every night on Fox, you can see Sean Hannity taking Trump's position on immigration and just terrorizing viewers about the idea that these immigrants are hordes of unwashed, dirty people coming to take your jobs mm -hmm. in caravans. And, you mm -hmm. know, it's 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 rapists. You know, rapists. It's the whole thing. And. And and I know that Rupert Murdoch doesn't believe that he's an immigrant himself, and he's he's spoken about it, and he's tweeted about it, and and he used to call Trump an idiot about it. And so, how does he balance those two things? Is is one of the questions I had. Same thing with global warming. Who did you pose that question to? I talked to people who really know him well, and I talked to people who'd worked at Fox. You know, people, and one of them is quoted in there. It's it's uh, Greta Van Susteren, who used to be uh, Fox host herself, and she's known Murdoch pretty well over the years. And I said, you know, like so, like how does he, how, you know, how does he sleep at night doing this? And she said, "Don't kid yourself. It's about the money." Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, you know, again, as I said, the reporters are the less naive. So I think people believe in stuff, but apparently no. he's the ultimate cynic. Yeah. It's the bottom line. Yeah. Uh, his view, he can make money doing this. He's going to keep making money doing this. He knows and has written and spoken about climate change. He knows it's real. He knows that it, humankind is causing it yeah. and that things can be done to mitigate. He's going to turn his former country into a pizza oven any day He now. will, but he's... But because, and, and if you watch Fox, and unfortunately I had to watch tons of it to do that story, you will see they do nothing but mock the idea of climate change. It's just a big joke to them on yeah. air. It's the University of Climate Denial. It is. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, he knows that that's that it's an incredibly harmful position to take. Now, when you watched all those hours and hours of Fox, boy, were there some surprises for you there when you watched? Did you, did you see anything? Yeah, they have variations among them. So <laughs> um, Brian Kilmeade in Fox and Friends will ask questions sometimes that sort of are prickly and uncomfortable about various things that Trump is saying, usually from the right, but he but he's a little, a little bit more independent. Um, and... Yeah, you know, each has Shepherd their own. Smith. Shep Smith. You know, yes, he's. He, what made he, him turn? Do you think? I don't want to. You know, I. He's I, become their one. He's like Alan Combs now, practically. You know. He is kind of. I mean, I think he's he, he's very useful to Fox. Uh, it's become important for Fox to try to look like it has some legitimacy on its news side. Mm -hmm. So they need people like Shepard Smith to occasionally break with the political line that comes down from the hosts at night. I don't know why he's still there, I have to say, given what's going on all around him. For those people who don't understand the James Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch uh, personality mm -hmm. index there, explain why was Lachlan anointed and not James, for those who don't understand the Well, I'm sure it's really complicated, but this was an incredible dynastic struggle in within the, the Murdoch family. And James wanted and, the job? Uh, I think James wanted to be the favorite son and, 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 and at least play a huge part in his father's media empire. And it was Lachlan who won out and, 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 and basically told, took over. And for what I'm told, James is the favorite son, but not the one to run the company. I've interviewed a lot of people around them, including their friends, and the, some suggest that, you know, there's really quite a break between James and his father and that they're not very cozy these days. So I, it's hard to tell. You know, you're on the outside. It's There's all this sibling rivalry and jockeying. And in the end of the day, Lachlan is now the rising power in the Murdoch empire. And if you look at what he did in Australia, as the Times describes it, it doesn't give you a lot of hope for fixing Fox. Well, that's what someone here. told me, not that Lockheed James is stupid. more of the intellectual. Right, and therefore, that disqualifies him to run the company. And he's married to a woman who's an environmentalist. Uh, so it was James and his wife, Catherine, who convinced Rupert Murdoch that climate change was real and he needed to try to do something about it. And Murdoch promised at one point a few years ago that he was going to incorporate it into all the programming they did in all the Murdoch-held media um, entities all around the world. And it never happened. So I was curious when I started this piece about, so how does this guy um, justify knowing better but putting these lies up on the air that are going to really hurt sort of the planet and humankind? Because he has so much influence. And at the end of the day, I hate to say it, but I think the answer was pretty simple. I mean, and it is, as as, as Greta Van Susteren said, he's making money off of it. Yeah. And, and it works for that. Yeah. 
I think he is conservative. I don't think he's like a flaming liberal who's trying to, you know, fight his instincts. Right. But there are issues where he disagrees with Trump, and it's a Faustian bargain. This is a non sequitur, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about. You know, in the world of mass incarceration, and we're saying that we want, you know, uh, we realize that it's prison incorporated and all these people are being sent to prison. And do you think that Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman deserve to go to prison? Okay, so I'm a mother of someone who applied to all those colleges, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we did oh, no, not. We can't have we, you with a jury. We did not bribe anyone, and if prison's good enough for for blue collar criminals, it's good enough for white collar criminals. Yeah. And I would be even happier if they were putting fewer people away of all kinds. I think our criminal justice system is draconian a lot of yes. the time. I think Felicity Huffman should be sentenced to teach acting for five years for free at Cal State Northridge. But I think to myself, to put them in prison, what does that gain society other than just to punish them? It's only to make an example of them. It's kind of like Martha Stewart or some of these other things. Yeah, it no, would I understand. Be that. You know, to get back to where we started, you said there's something on everyone. And I said, yes. And what we want to know is, how do they deal with it? What do they learn from it? I was reading stuff lately where they said, that, oh, we thought we we're going to get a slap on the wrist. And boy, do we miscalculate. And boy, are they sorry now. I was reading about it. But it sounds like they're sorry only because they might go to prison. They're sorry not they got because caught. they're sorry they got caught. That's right. kind of not good enough. So I guess in, in my little psychodrama here in the voir dire of the jury, you're dismissed, Ms. May. <laughs> I, I might you're dismissed be. from jury I duty from this case. You, this you may leave now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and my last question for you is, everywhere you go, this administration is doing horrible things and evading responsibility for all of it. Really worried about it. Yes, I do. I mean, I should, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. Usually you have I'm, to face I'm, this usually, every day. I'm pretty optimistic generally that if the public gets information, it'll make a difference and that public pressure is a very powerful thing in a democracy, so you can push back. But I'm really worried about it. I think this next election is like the ultimate stress test for this country. And I just don't know if, do, do you think without if the press it? can make the difference here, if the truth makes the difference here. I don't know. I only know how to do what I do, which is like get the story, get what's right, get it out there. And I always think, well, then people will care. And I just don't know if it's going to make the difference anymore. I can't tell because things are it's we're in a we're in a really dangerous spot. Who do you attribute this kind of backbone you have and this grit you have to do that, that this work requires? Your mother, your father, or both? Probably, I mean, my father was a musician. He was a composer. Um, and my mom's family is very Midwestern and kind of waspy. I think it, they have that kind of puritanical do-good-in-the-world mission. That's yeah. probably where I got it from. Yeah. I hate to tell you. But Jane Mayer had second thoughts about attributing all her reporting rigor to a Protestant work ethic. Which one of your family was, was in the banking business? Was Lehman? The Lehmans. They were my great-great-great-grandfather uh, on the Jewish side, my father's your side. Your father's side. My father's side. Were so the, you could afford to write they were the, they were the They were the, <laughs> the rich, funny Jews going through the family fortune, and the other side were like, you know, I'm, I'm like so melting pot. Investigative journalist Jane Mayer. Her book on Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas is Strange Justice, written with Jill Abramson. Her recent work on Fox News is called The Making of the Fox News White House, and it appeared in the March 11, 2019 issue of The New Yorker. 
This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.